Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, SV Pod. Scott Van Pelt, along with Stanford Steve, bring you high-level sports analysis as well as stories as two dads raising their kids. Plus, find out every Tuesday what they hate to see if you agree. That's SV Pod. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also, NBA Today, hosted by Malika Andrews, offers exclusive content Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Alongside Malika, there will be a full cast of NBA experts and insiders, including Kendrick Perkins, Chenea Gumake, Vince Carter, Zach Lowe, Woj, Ramona Shelburne, and many of our NBA reporters from around the league. Get caught up with the latest from around the NBA on NBA Today on ESPN and the ESPN app. One app, one tap. And also available as a podcast. Listen to NBA Today wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the right time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, it's time to say farewell to Mike Krzyzewski. Oh. Shout out to Kansas. Y'all in the tournament and don't nobody know it. This is a thing, actually, with Bill Self in Kansas. When they won the national championship in 2008, they were the other team that made the Final Four, I felt like. So as you remember, that was the first year ever that four teams made it to the Final Four who were number one seeds. And so it was Memphis, UCLA, Kansas, and North Carolina, okay? UCLA and Memphis played in the semifinal, and Memphis won. But you got to remember, that's the year that Memphis had only lost one game leading up to that point, right? Like, this is the question about whether John Calipari could finally put it all together. And then in the other game, you had Kansas and North Carolina, but that was all about Roy. Like, it was nothing about Bill Self facing North Carolina. It was all about Roy Williams facing Kansas for the first time since he had left. And as you recall, he and his team famously threw up all over themselves. Like, the nerves that Roy had went all the way down through his team. And then you get to the championship game, and now it's can Cal bring it home? Like, never mind that Bill Self was in his first Final Four and had never been there. It was a different discussion around Cal. Can Cal bring it home? And, of course, they're up eight with less than two minutes left, and then Kansas brings it all the way around. And if you watch that game and saw any of the clips of Cal on the sideline, he choked it away. Like, you could see it all just cripple his body, and you saw it all go through his team, and they ultimately went to overtime, the Mario Chalmers shot. Shout out to Toya. You know how she feel about Mario Chalmers. You know, next thing you know, they choke it out and Kansas wins it. But it felt at every turn like everybody that self-faced actually lost it. You can argue about whether or not that's fair. I'm not saying that we being cool to build self in this context. But I think that anybody who was around at the time while all of that happened remembers that as I do. They were just the other team that was there. And it was a lot more about the teams that lost than it ever was about that Kansas team, which was really good, by the way. It was not that much about them winning. And it's wild because now in this Final Four, like the matchups, it was all, all, all going in about Duke and Carolina. 
Like that was it. It was mostly about Shashevsky, but then it was really kind of Duke and Carolina. And then it was a Kansas Villanova game. And Kansas, which has got to be the best team that's in this tournament. And Villanova, I don't be knowing them dudes who play for Villanova until they in the NBA for the eighth year. Like, it just felt like Villanova every year got the same set of dudes that ain't really that big. Like, every now and then they get a big dude. And you'd be like, damn, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about them. And then you look up, in his seventh year, Jalen Brunson. I don't even know if he's in his seventh year or whatever. But you know what I mean? Like, you just look up at them dudes, been in the league forever. Gabe, Ryan, Archie Diacono, I think that's how you say it. Either way, he's still in the league. It's another Archie Diacono at Villanova right now. He going to be in the league for like eight years. I don't be knowing nothing about them boys when they actually there going to Final Fours and winning national championships. Don't know why. Don't really got nothing. And they face off against Kansas. Kansas put the screws in them boys. They gave it to them. And so now we are here. It's a championship game. The matchup of the two programs, I don't know if you could call their relationship incestuous, but the family tree between North Carolina and Kansas, I mean, for those of you who don't like know and get it, okay. Dean Smith from Kansas went to Kansas wound up being the coach at North Carolina. He sends his guy, Roy Williams, to coach at Kansas. But don't forget, the coach before Roy Williams at Kansas was Dean Smith's guy, Larry Brown, who he sent over there. Roy goes there. He has Matt Doherty as an assistant. Doherty did a year at North Carolina before he became the coach at UNC. But what do you know? Another Kansas-North Carolina connection. Bill Self, I think, has played Carolina twice in the tournament. The first one was the choke game. The second one, as I recall, is the game where Kendall Marshall had the broken wrist and they started a guy named Stillman White at point guard for North Carolina. And Bill Self got to his second Final Four and they ultimately got to the championship game where they lost to Kentucky. But these two programs, historically great ones, right? Like two of the top six, they always overlapping with each other. And now uh, you get Hubert Davis, who has improved his reputation in six weeks more than anybody else that I can think of going up against Bill Self. And if I'm a Kansas fan, I'm nervous. I'm very, very nervous. And I said on Twitter during the game against Miami why I would be nervous, though Kansas turned it around. The end of the first half of that game against Miami, and forgive me, I didn't watch it all. But I look up and Miami's got that lead against Kansas and Kansas looked a little bit tight. I didn't see these games so many times with Bill Self. The kryptonite for Bill Self is a game that everybody thinks his team should win, but he knows they might lose. And that's when the choke comes in. You throw Bill Self out there with that Kansas team that he had in 2012 against Kentucky where they were definitely overmatched, and Kentucky had the talent, and Bill Self will have that team in there in a way that they should not be. Like, as I recall, they were competitive in that game into the second half where most of us thought that they were going to get their doors blown off by a Kentucky team that had only lost one game, I think, one or two up to that point in the season. But they can hang there. But you put Bill Self out there with a team that, quote-unquote, doesn't belong there and let them keep that game close, it gets shaky. You want some examples. Okay. Kansas fans have a little something they like to recall. Brad Nell. That would be those back-to-back years where Bill Self lost to Bradley and Bucknell in the NCAA tournament when they came in at like a four seed and then they lost to these double-digit seeds. 
There is the loss. I mean, I even throw this one in there. I want to say it was the 2007, it was six or seven where they lost to UCLA. Where Kansas had a better team than UCLA, but you watched it the whole way and you're like, yep, they're never going to win this. No chance. Whatever year it was that they lost to Northern Iowa when they were the one seed and Ali Farouk Manesh, I believe was his name and shot them up in the second round. You remember that one. It was the year that they lost to Wichita State in the second round in a game that's absolutely the Super Bowl for Wichita State. And Self with Andrew, was that? No, they also Stanford the year they had Andrew Wiggins, second round. Another very similar game to that one. But you see what I'm saying. I can stack these things up. Oh, VCU in the Elite Eight. The year they won the national championship, and they almost lost to Davidson. Now, granted, yes, Steph Curry was out there killing it. But they almost lost to Davidson. VCU was out there running a zone against them in the second half in 2011 because they just didn't have the bodies and didn't have the players. And like we're basically winning that game the whole way, as I recall it. Those are the games that Bill Self will mess around and lose on you. Games that everybody else thinks that he should win, but he's a little bit nervous. Is this one of those? Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. I owe you an apology, Hubert Davis. I said you shouldn't have showed up to even play that game because I thought that you should maintain the petty and hold on to that last win that Carolina had at Cameron Indoor Stadium. And, I mean, I don't know if I said the quiet part out loud when I brought that up. I thought Duke was going to beat the brakes off North Carolina. I did not think North Carolina was going to win that game. I didn't think they were going to win that game at Cameron. I thought the first game that they played during the season was far more uh, representative of what would happen in this game than the second one was. And now, man, North Carolina went out there and brought it to them dudes gave it to them now i upset some of you guys after the game because i said that good luck to you if you want to draft paolo bancaro and my point was if that dude's got to work so hard to get buckets against brady manic and a one-legged armando baycott i just don't know if you're talking about like some all-star top three top player that people are talking about. And they're like, he was cooking Brady Manic all night. Did y'all watch the clutch of that game where Bancaro had, I want to say, three points in the last eight minutes? And the thing was, when he was getting buckets, they weren't easy buckets. Like, that was the thing that was striking me about watching that dude play. 
is with all the physical talent that he has, shortcoming number one, obviously he doesn't play much defense. Like somewhere like 10 years ago, Krzyzewski stopped coaching defense. I don't know why, but like what used to be the hallmark stopped being it. My contention is they stopped playing defense once the refs started regulating all that hand contact. And then all of a sudden they weren't nearly as good as defense when they couldn't cheat no more. Anyway, but Bancaro, I remember when Adam Morrison, and I'm not saying he's the same player as Adam Morrison, but when Adam Morrison was at Gonzaga, the red flag on him was that he was so good and so sophisticated at getting buckets, but he had to use so many tricks to get buckets in college that it just wasn't going to work in the league. And that was my thing with Bancaro is you got Brady Manick guarding you and you putting your back on him and you can't get an easy bucket. You got Baycott, who you are much bigger, like sturdier than, and you can't get an easy bucket. Even if you're able to score in college, if you can't get easy buckets, that's an issue. And what somebody in my Twitter mentioned said about him that added up was he's a dude who looks like he's used to being guarded by people six inches shorter than him. Like there's no point in being big if you can't put big to use. Like being big and all you do is face the basket, mm -mm, that ain't going to do it. You got to be able to put your back on somebody and make it easy if you're going to be his size. That's what it's going to take. And I ain't see that from him. And I have no idea why that made people so mad. I was like, look, I'm not a draft expert, but I'm seeing a dude who Brady Manick is doing a good job guarding. That Armando Baycott, who I don't think is going to play an NBA minute. Well, he may play some, but I don't think he's like an NBA player. What's your man got for him? And he didn't have it. That's not saying he's a bad player. Like, if he's there at number eight in the draft, yeah, go ahead and take him. But people talking about him like he's one of the top players in this draft, which don't say much for this draft if you can't get easy buckets on Brady Manic when your team needs it. Like, this was the go-get-it time. And if Bancaro was the guy that people are trying to tell me that he is, then he would have gone out there and got it. And he didn't. They're playing against a team far less talented than they are. That's where you should be able to ride the horse all the way home. And they couldn't. And so, yeah, I say good luck on whether you want to take that dude. And y'all was like, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Da, da, da. You just a casual. Now, I think there's nothing really more casual than looking at a guy that everybody's told you is a top five pick and seeing how big he is and seeing that he can do outside things and then saying, oh, OK, well, that guy is definitely that. Like that feels like the most casual thing in the world to me. Looking at some things that are a little bit subtle, like I was talking to a college basketball coach yesterday about Bancaro, and he saw exactly what it was that I saw. Y'all going to tell that man he's a casual? And I would like to know, just so you know, because people like throwing casual around, and that's fine. I'm just saying this. If your broke ass has all the knowledge and my rich ass is a casual, which one of us is doing this wrong? I just want you to think about that for a second. You know what I'm saying? You over there looking at the gas prices like, damn, how am I going to get to work tomorrow? Because I got to do that and then come back home and watch all this basketball film. And I'm over here like, damn, I don't even know what gas costs. Whew. All that basketball knowledge ain't doing too much for you now, is it? But to me, though, when you start talking about cats like that, it gets less about the macro, it gets less about the numbers, and it gets more about what you see in big game individual matchups. And that's why I got the skepticism of that dude. So, yeah, yeah, you 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 dedicated college basketball watcher. <laughs> yeah, great idea. Anyway, we're going to forget about talking about that because I know why y'all here, man. Mike Krzyzewski just coached his last game as a college basketball coach. At least that's what we think. Who knows? You might mess around and pull a Tom Brady, pull a Brett Favre. You know what I'm saying? Could go all kinds of ways. I don't really know. I did something on TV the other day, back on the record with Bob Costas. 
and I was on with J.J. Reddick. I ain't going to talk about being on there with David Sampson, for those of you who hope I would talk about that. Nah, I'm not going to do that. I get out there, and of course, like my good folks at HBO had told me, they're like, hey, uh, we're going to run some of you know, clip from your show, and J.J. is going to talk about it. And of course, the clip they run is just me saying the legacy of Coach K is based on whiteness and the perception of whiteness. And I explicitly say, that doesn't make Coach K a racist, but you know, I ain't sure about the rest of you. And J.J. immediately says, I can't believe you said that Coach's legacy is anti-blackness. And I'm like, I didn't say his legacy was anti-blackness. I said that his legacy was built on perceptions of whiteness, whether or not he did it on purpose or not. I think it's undeniable that the biggest reason why we talk about Krzyzewski in the way that we do is that run from 86 to 94, where they made seven Final Fours, four championship games, and won two titles in nine years of the open tournament era, which is absolutely bananas. They had the squad with the white dudes as the black invasion of college basketball was beginning. I know that doesn't sit well with a lot of y'all just because you're cowards, but that's an undeniable fact about the legend that was built of Mike Krzyzewski. Like there were other coaches of similar time, maybe not of his age, but of similar time who had become similarly legendary, but none of them became like commercial pitchmen. Like he did. None of them became ubiquitous. Like there's no college basketball coach that when they retire, they wanted to be like, I'm going to do a farewell tour where we would care or where anybody would stop and give them gifts. You can't think of one. And it's not just about success. If Jim Calhoun and his three titles had done a farewell tour, they weren't going to stop and honor him at every turn. Like Krzyzewski's here in large part because of the brand of Krzyzewski. Part of it is A, he ushered in the era of the coach, not as teacher, but the coach as CEO. Which, by the way, was terrible for college basketball. It was all cool in college basketball until all the coaches learned how to dress. Like when I was a kid, you had like Wimp Sanderson in them crazy coats. You know what I'm saying? Like you always had, like you, you saw personality in the coaches. You saw differences in them. You saw interesting quotes that they wound up giving. There was just a lot of variance in terms of what kind of person became a college basketball coach. And you don't see that anymore. They all the same at this point. They all boring as hell. And they're all following the same template of Mike Krzyzewski. That's it. Now, I mean, I'm not blaming Krzyzewski for what it all turned into, but I'm saying if you go look at it, talk to people who are my age and older about what the personalities of college basketball coaches were. Like, can you imagine a coach standing on the sideline now with like one of them sweaters like Luke Harnaseka? Or standing on the sideline like Jerry Tarkanian with a short sleeve dress shirt and a towel. Like, can you imagine that? It would never happen. They've all moved out of that space. And I agree with look the best you can when you're going to be on TV. Don't get me wrong. But I know not everybody feel that way. But there was an energy and stuff that was around it that has become a standardization because everybody was trying to be Coach K. Like that's how influential he ultimately wound up being as a coach. But the thing about Krzyzewski for me now, as he leaves, and I did a Twitter thread yesterday about like how he matched up against UNC coaches. And, you know, it's, there are no easy answers for a lot of it about was he did he have a better run than Dean when he coached against Dean? Did he have a better run against Roy when he coached against Roy? He obviously didn't have a better run than Guthridge when he coached against him, although the best Krzyzewski team was in the middle of the Guthridge run. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's so much that goes on when we talk about him. And for me, the most disappointing part about watching his farewell tour is there's so much interesting about Mike Krzyzewski, and we didn't do that. Like, the decision had been made long ago that the legend of Mike Krzyzewski was going to be built, and then that legend of Mike Krzyzewski had, in fact, been established. And that's all we were going to do was genuflect to the legend of Mike Krzyzewski and not really have any discussion 
of him or any discussion about what it is that actually makes him interesting. And what I think makes Krzyzewski interesting as much as anything else, we just pick it up from he went to West Point and then he coached at West Point and then he went to Duke. But to me, there's like something so decidedly like it's an archetypal American story. A Polish kid from the south side of Chicago uses the military as his way out, right? As his way up. And then winds up in this bastion of wasp money at Duke, which is nothing like him. Like, that's not what he's from. That's not what he's of. That's not what he came from. I can only imagine, like, for him, what it was like when he first got there. I imagine it was a crazy adjustment for him, that he had never really spent that much time with people like those who said the kinds of things and talked about the kinds of things that those people talked about. And eventually, the kid from Chicago with the name with all the consonants became the king of that place. Like, there's a real rags-to-riches element to him that I think we kind of pay a little lip service to, but we don't really talk about nearly as much. I don't think that younger people are able to appreciate what the magnitude of Dean Smith in North Carolina basketball was when Krzyzewski got there. When Krzyzewski gets there in 1980, the next two years, Carolina goes to the championship game, and then they win the national championship. Like, Krzyzewski arrived just in time for North Carolina to go on a run of 13 straight years in the Sweet 16. That's crazy. And you know what he did in the midst of those 13 years that Carolina's going to the Sweet 16? Had a run where they went to the Final Four seven times in eight years. So it looks like Carolina's falling off and Duke is coming up because Duke went to one, two, three, four national championship games in a stretch where Carolina didn't even, like went to one final four and didn't go to a national championship game. And then after that run ends, Carolina wins the championship the next year. And then the year after that, Carolina's got the best team in the country in 94. And then Duke goes to the title game because Carolina loses in the second round. You see what I mean? Like there's all these ups and downs and ebbs and flows and him being squared up against a legend for basically every year of his time while he was at Duke or the fact that they seemed so far ahead when Roy Williams showed up in 03. And then by the end of Roy's run, Roy unquestionably had a better run during that time than Mike Krzyzewski did. And you know what else happened in that run? Krzyzewski went to the one and done plan. What nobody talks about with Krzyzewski and the one and done plan is the results didn't improve. They didn't do much better in terms of tournament success when they went to the one-and-done game versus what they were doing before. But they had to stop doing what they were doing before because Carolina was beating their asses so bad at the early part of that Roy run that they had to, like, okay, we got to step this thing up. Then they win a championship in 2010 with the old model. You see what I mean? Like, there's so much around this that goes on. There's so much to be discussed with Duke and the relationship Krzyzewski had with the officials and the way that he berated them endlessly. They talk about the Bobby Knight thing, and they're like, oh, he's so much different than Bobby Knight. The difference between he and Bobby Knight is that Bobby Knight was willing to be a jerk in public, and Mike Krzyzewski always wanted you to make you think he was something else. We didn't even bother to take the time to go into some of the harassment that he's engaged in when it comes to like student reporters or the ways that he's talked to his players and the complexities of the relationships that his players have with him. 
right? Christian Leitner talking about in 92 at practice at one day, Krzyzewski looked at him and said, I wish you hadn't come back to school. And 30 years later, it was clear that Christian Leitner hadn't gotten over that. Like, we don't even present that with Krzyzewski. It's like, man, this is the complex figure that we talk, you know, that kind of thing. We don't even do that. Like, the investment in building up the legend of Krzyzewski has honestly taken us away from some stuff with a guy that is really, really interesting. Like, everybody's afraid to discuss the idea that it seemed like Duke had a recruiting template at one point. Explore it. Like, you're so afraid that you'll get down to the bottom of it that the answer is Mike Krzyzewski is a racist that we don't get to the bottom of something fascinating. And by the way, you want to know what I think that era or run, at least to the eye, probably had more to do with? And by the way, it's not without basis, keeping in mind that Quinn Snyder, when things went down, had to come to Mike and be like, hey, man, we got to start recruiting some different players. But if we had stopped and done some exploration, those of you who feel the need to defend Mike Krzyzewski might have stopped and asked yourself this question. So the guys from more hard scrabble backgrounds, what are their experiences like at Duke? Are they comfortable at Duke? Are they able to deal with that place? Do they want to transfer? Are they unhappy? Does it make them miserable? Because dude, I'm here to tell you, man, I grew up as a fairly upper middle class kid with very, very educated parents, and I would lose my mind if I tried to go to Duke. Like it just, it, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have handled that. That wasn't for me. And we talking about cats that's coming from something completely different than I ever came from. That's not Shashevsky's fault necessarily. But if you are Shashevsky, you got to react to that, right? Like you got to be like, hey, man, we bring these cats in. It don't necessarily work for them. Or even if he's like, I don't think it'll work for them. Okay, that's a discussion to be had also. Like you probably need to put that on the road. But Gabe, you remember when uh, Grant Hill thought that Jalen Rose had called him an Uncle Tom? How long ago was that? Like 10 years ago now. I had a conversation with Grant after that. And like, he was telling me about Antonio Lang, a player that you don't remember, but people my age would. And he was like, dude, Antonio Lang had never met a white person in his life before he got to Duke. Cause he's from Mobile, Alabama. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a bit more to this. There's a lot that goes on. I had this conversation once with a gentleman named Bill Brill, uh, the press room at Cameron Indoor Stadium is named after Bill. And Bill never knew what to do with me. God rest his soul. He never had any idea what to do with me because he liked me, but he was a very conservative man. So I don't think he thought he was supposed to like me. You know what I mean? But anyway, we were sitting at lunch one day in Durham as he was trying to figure me out. And he talked about like David Henderson when he was at Duke. And he's like, yeah, David Henderson grew up in a house with a dirt floor. Like this stuff isn't easy, but people want it to be easy. And with all my criticisms of Krzyzewski, I don't find it to be easy. And all the people who want to lionize him do. And you know what I think that really comes down to? We as media, as it relates to a lot of these sports, became part of the PR for it. Like the legend of Mike Krzyzewski, it became almost on us to build that legend up. And then when you get younger people in the game and the legend is there, you don't say anything because you don't feel like you got the stripes to really do it. Or maybe you're afraid to do cut off access for you. I don't know. But there's just too much here for us to get to the end at Mike Krzyzewski and be like, yeah, they lost. But looking for everything he did for college basketball. Hell no, not right now. We could do that like after the game. Like we can do this today in this moment. But rather than take a truly compelling figure and do what we could to explore him and to talk about him as he was. People on both sides of Wyshevsky preferred to talk about him as they wanted him to be, as it served them for him to be as a two-dimensional figure. And I think that we missed out 
on 40 years of, look, I think there's more to dislike with Krzyzewski than there is to like. That doesn't mean he's a bad person. But from what I've seen of him and his dorky basketball program that he absolutely leaned in on making dorky until he looked up and realized all them dorks wasn't getting done. And all of a sudden, bring on the blacks. I tell people this, man. When I was doing radio there in 09 and people starting to worry about the roster for Duke. And they were like, well, I'm really excited about what the recruiting is looking like next year. The recruiting class they were talking about at that time was Josh Hairston, Taylor Thornton, and Andre Dawkins. All they were was black. Like it wasn't Kyrie hadn't even signed up to be part of that class yet. All they were was black. And so while everybody gets scared of talking about, don't you see it? Like, don't you see? And don't you see how interesting that is? Like, you don't find that interesting? And you can't do it. And you can't do it because it's almost impossible to have a sincere conversation about Duke without some mention of race. And y'all are so scared that you're going to tell on yourselves. That's the only explanation I got. So I do say, hey, man, college basketball was better for Mike Krzyzewski. College basketball was better for Duke. The consistency of his run. You think about this. He had a 42-year run, and we can only point to that one bad year. Think about that. He deserves all the credit in the world for it. And a basketball observation, like what his contribution is. I'm so mad at myself at this because I can never remember who it was that I was talking to, but I was in the press room in Greensboro in 2006 for the ACC tournament. It was the first time I had gone. And especially when you're like covering ACC stuff, I can't speak for other conferences, but so many of those guys are local and have been there forever. And like they look at college basketball in a different way. And so he was basically running down for me, like from all the great coaches and like what their greatest contribution was. And so with Wooden, I can't remember exactly what he said that it was that Wooden provided. He said with Dean Smith, what Dean Smith brought was the emphasis on execution. This isn't about adjustment. This is about execution, doing what you do the best that Bobby Knight with the motion offense, then brought in something different in terms of college basketball and the evolution of where it went. But he said what Krzyzewski did and what was so interesting as a juxtaposition against Dean Smith, where Dean Smith, for him, the unit was the game. We're trying to win the game. Don't call a lot of timeouts because it's ebbs and flows in the game. It's no big deal. You know, it's just, you know, these things come back around. You see that in Roy Williams. You see it in Hubert Davis, who had four timeouts left in the last minute of that game, right? Like, that's how they see things. Okay. With Krzyzewski... It was all about the intensity required to win every possession. Like that floor slapping shit is weird, but that's what it was basically. The idea of this sweltering man-to-man defense and that we are going to win every single possession. And that was really the contribution of Krzyzewski was intensity as a commodity in your basketball strategy. And it was just such a fascinating thing. Like I would say, I wish I remember who it was so I could talk to that dude and have him run it down again. But all of that's here. And y'all just want to throw flowers to that man instead of talk about the most important figure of the last 45 years of college basketball. That's 50 years of college basketball. I find it weird. I wish him farewell. And I hope he takes that L with him all the way to the grave. I hope it hurts him. I hope it hurts everybody else that was involved. You earned it. You deserve it. I hope you feel like losers forever.
If You Haven't Heard is brought to you by the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax. CarMax, here to innovate. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now, If You Haven't Heard. All right, Bo, this first story comes from Metro. My name is Robert Klemko, and I'm a writer for The Washington Post, and I recently wrote a story about a police department in Nebraska that has been rapidly adding female hires to police a suburb south of Omaha. The police chief's name is Ken Clary. He's a former Iowa State trooper. He took a number of criminology courses uh, later in his career in Washington and sort of confirmed some of his own suspicions and was enlightened to the idea that women make for better outcomes in policing when it comes to brutality and effectiveness in search and seizure and investigating sexual assaults and domestic violence, in addition to a number of other police pursuits. So Ken, once he got hired as a police chief in a Nebraska town that had been racked by scandal with their police department, decided that he would diversify the department in several ways, including adding Spanish speakers and people of color. But his biggest priority was adding women. So nine of his last 15 hires have been women in the last 18 months. And they're beginning to see some of the fruits of that labor. In addition, Chief Clary has taken his show on the road, so to speak, preaching the gospel of uh, the effectiveness of diversity and policing across Nebraska with mixed results. He's had a number of organizations adopt his way of thinking and join an initiative called 30 by 30, which encourages departments to achieve 30% female rosters by 2030. But much more of the pushback centers around the idea that he is simply lowering standards and hiring people who are unqualified to be police officers. Ken is eager for the results over the next few years to prove him right. Oh, they talk about lowering the standards for hiring police officers like you got the best and the brightest as is. Like, how hard y'all trying to get the best right now? What I'm trying to figure out in this is, ladies, why would you want to be a police officer? And this is why I say that. I feel like much of the attraction to being a cop is based on, like, dumb dudes care about. So there was a billboard... It was in Florida. Gabe, you said his billboard, it would show a picture of a police cruiser, like a, for the state troopers. And the hook was, this could be your office. How is pushing it around in a Crown Vic attractive? Like, why would you want to do that? But they're basically just selling you on the idea that you can be powerful. Like, you could be in charge. You could run something. And like it or not, like, that's how I think people view policing, both from the inside of the operation and outside of the operation. So women being more effective at this, I think it's absolutely true that that would be more effective. But the question that you have to ask is whether effectiveness is what the cops are actually going for. And if they come in and they are more effective, are they going to let them stick around? And by them, I mean their peers. Like the problem with cop stuff is good cops can't last because bad cops get them out of there. Like good cops can afford to be more tolerant of bad cops than bad cops can be tolerant of good cops. The bad cops need to worry that the good cops are going to snitch on them. The good cops are more likely to kind of roll with things and compartmentalize what them folks are doing because they don't want to give it all up on their end. But the bad cops can't afford to wait on that. And so hopefully this works and hopefully their policing becomes effective, more effective. But the problem with the policing is the police always has been, always will be. All right. This next one comes from business. 
Hey, my name is Paul Blessed, and I'm a reporter at Vice News. So there's a company called AFC Brands, which runs dozens of Applebee's and Taco Bells in the Midwest and the East Coast, and an executive at a subsidiary which runs Applebee's in Kansas named Wayne Pankratz sent an email this month to other executives and regional directors which said that, quote, the labor market is about to turn in our favor. He cited inflation, high gas prices, the end of COVID unemployment benefits being positives for the company as they would all push low-income workers into jobs at Applebee's for lower wages. So last week, the email was forwarded to a Lawrence, Kansas Applebee's, and it did not go well. A manager quit on the spot, comped the meals of everyone who was eating there, and printed out copies and put them all around the restaurant. The next day, workers shut down the Applebee's for several hours, and the email was later shared on Reddit where it went viral. Current and former employees told us that the email, though, was just the straw that broke the camel's back. They said that the company's leaders haven't treated them with respect, They're not making the same sort of money that they did before the pandemic, and they're overworked because no one wants to work for low wages, and the company hasn't provided the resources to retain employees, which has led to a lot of turnover. Applebee's confirmed Monday that the AFC brand's executive has been fired, but since the email came in last week, four out of six managers and at least 10 other employees at the Lawrence, Kansas Applebee's have quit or put in notice. As one former manager named Jenna Willis told us, how can we continue to work for a company that doesn't care about us? Good for those people. I remember once, and this is what I think when I hear this. I worked for this one company, and I was negotiating a deal with them, and I asked for a certain amount of money, and they balked at it. And I explained to them I needed that money to pay out for some services that I was going to be asked to provide. Like The deal was through my LLC. I was going to take the responsibility of paying these people. But that was what it was. They bristled at giving the money to me. But when they found out I wanted to give the money to somebody else, it wasn't a problem. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of like how college football teams are willing to build a dorm to attract football players, but don't want to give the money to the players themselves. And that's what I think when I hear this story, because what gets me about these companies like Applebee's and everything else is, okay, so if there's a spike in the price of tomatoes, they're going to jack up the price and they're going to tell you, yo, tomatoes are a little pricey, so your salad going to cost a little bit more. But they'll just jack up the price. When it comes to labor, they just won't pay you more. Right? Everything's changing around you, da-da-da, everything else. And it's kind of like, oh, well, I don't know what to do. And so the memo getting around is like obviously a bad thing, and I get where people are coming from, but I also think those people are being naive to a certain extent. Yes, this is what the circumstances are. Yeah, it's probably going to drive some people to come back and take these jobs. Um, that they did not want before. Like, I don't think that would have been enough for me to walk out of my job necessarily. But again, I don't blame anybody where it took them to that point that that was what they were going to do. But I just don't know why these jobs don't understand, man. They keep thinking that they can wait this out and that the work game is going to return to what it was. The moral of the story of the last two years is ain't nothing going back to the way it was. Right, you got to get on board with what this new thing is. We thought that COVID stuff was just a spike and we was going to get past it. No, nah, man, it's a new world order. And these people want to be paid more money. And if you want people to come work at your damn Applebee's, you're going to have to pay them more money. Or the general manager going to be down there in his red shirt, not the, not the white or the blue ones everybody else wear. He's going to be down there in his red shirt bussing tables because somebody got to keep that Applebee's running. All right, this last one. Comes from education. 
This is Olivia Lank. I am the executive producer of digital content for WTNH and WTNH.com. We published a story on March 28th about a former Yale University School of Medicine employee pleading guilty to stealing and selling more than $40 million in electronics from the university. 42-year-old Jamie Patrone of Lithia Springs, Georgia, is formerly of Naugatuck, Connecticut. She pled guilty in Hartford Federal Court. According to the Department of Justice, she pled guilty to fraud and tax offenses related to her theft of $40 million in computer and electronic hardware from Yale University. She was employed by the university in 2008 and most recently served as the Director of Finance and Administration for the Department of Emergency Medicine. According to the Department of Justice, as part of her job responsibilities, Patron had to authorize certain purchases as long as the purchase amount was below $10,000. As early as 2013, the Department of Justice said she ordered or caused others working for her to order millions of dollars of electronic hardware from Yale vendors using Yale Med funds. She also arranged to ship the stolen hardware to an out-of-state business in exchange for money. The total loss that Patron caused to the school was $40,502,200. She also failed to pay taxes on the money she received from selling the stolen equipment, which caused a loss of over $6 million to the U.S. Treasury, according to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice says that she agreed to forfeit over $500,000. That was seized from a bank account, a 2014 Mercedes-Benz, a 2017 Range Rover, a 2015 Cadillac Escalade, a 2020 Mercedes-Benz, a 2016 Cadillac Escalade, and a 2018 Dodge Charger. She pled guilty to one count of wire fraud, and she will be sentenced in June. Gabe! Where was she keeping all these cars? Like, was she pulling up to Yale in a different car every week? I can't believe she did this for so long. only reason I can guess that she did this for so long is they were just setting her up to, like, really make sure that they brought her down. That's all I got. And they came back on the, you ain't pay your taxes on it. Wow. So, like, I know a dude once, he said he worked at the mall, and they had, like, some company Christmas party or something like that. But they had it, like, at the store, and everybody got ripped and, like, you got the managers passed out on the floor. And so he said him and his man looked around and saw what was going on and cleaned them out. And then he quit not long after. This woman stuck around. Like, she just thought she was never going to get caught. Like, that's what it came down to. She just thought she was never going to get caught. All that money. all And, yes, I did hear Lithia Springs, Georgia. Yes, that is, in effect, Atlanta, guys. I heard all those numbers, and I just, like, you just kept going. You said it was never going to happen. You said it was never going to happen. Never going to happen. $40 million worth of stuff. And you know what I think when I hear that? Damn, Yale got a lot of money. Y'all got $40 million worth of electronics. I don't think my alma mater got $40 million worth of school. I don't know if we got $40 million worth of buildings. I don't know if we got $40 million worth of land. Y'all got $40 million worth of gadgets? Wow. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. So a couple weeks ago, Spencer had a tweet talking about craziest places you've ever seen a fight. Then 
last Sunday, this thing happened with, you know, Will Smith at the Oscars with Chris mm-hmm. Rock had me thinking that would make for a very interesting voicemail segment. So our first one comes from Fred in St. Louis. The most ridiculous place I've seen a fight break out was actually walking out of the funeral of my grandfather. I had two uncles who had been fighting all week over his Cadillac. You know how families are once you, your grandparents or your parents pass away. All the kids start claiming their personal possessions. So they had been fighting all week over who was going to get his car. So as they're walking out and they're carrying my grandfather, they're the pallbearers, they're carrying my grandfather. They get into an argument again over this damn Cadillac. And as they get to the front of the, of the steps and get ready to, to, to carry him to the uh, hearse, they set him down. And went to blows. And my other uncles had to break them up. But yeah, that was the most ridiculous place I'd ever seen a fight break out. And over personal items. So yeah, a funeral. My uncles. 1986. <laughs> Hold up. So you saying they set the box down and started scrapping immediately? Dog funerals bring it out, man. There's somebody listening to this show right now. And I hope he feel better after hearing this because he had to stop his mama from fighting at a funeral over four hundred dollars and all i'm saying is while the cadillac may have been more money than four hundred dollars she ain't dropped the box and then put up hands you know what i'm saying like i feel like every time something dramatic happened at a funeral you just need to hear about somebody else this is par for the course i'm so afraid of what gonna happen when my parents die i'm like dude just sell it all Sell it all. They ain't even got nothing. I want that bad. Sell it all. All right. This next one comes from Tim in Indianapolis. I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis during the Bobby Knight years. So to say that my friend's dads were want to fight in just about any situation is an (laughs) understatement. But the craziest fight I ever saw broke out at a kid's preschool Christmas program when I think it was a little kid who was playing an angel dropped his halo. Someone laughed, and someone's dad took umbrage and uh, ended up being about 12 dudes just rumbling right over by those giant camcorders that we used to have. It was pretty funny, especially when the preschool teacher came out and said that she was going to get the cops in here on every last one of them. If the cops didn't do the job, she was going to call her husband. So things get better, I hope. Hey, man, sometimes you just got to go, baby. Sometimes it's got to be right here, right now. And I hadn't thought about that. That there was a bunch of dudes are walking around Indiana wanting to be like Bobby Knight, meaning they wanted to fight all the time. Yeah, no, thank you for letting us know. That like black people are the only people that get influenced by celebrities in negative ways. Good to learn that. All right, our last one comes from Steve. No location for him. There it is. The craziest place I saw somebody fight was in church. And I kid you not. So uh, the pastor's wife had a suspicion that the piano player was sleeping with her husband. So she came to church and she was sitting there. And so she gets up in the middle of the church and in the middle of church service and walks over and say, are you sleeping with my husband? And the piano player, piano lady, she says, no, I'm not. She said, you're lying. She threw some on top of the piano and slapped the piano player. And they got to fighting in the middle of church, Bomani. And, of course, <laughs> uh, our pastor back then, he didn't know what to do or what to say. And the whole church was just like in shock that this was happening in the middle of church. So 
that was the craziest place I've seen a fight in my life, man. Yo, what's so wild about it is they don't be leaving their draws over there by accident. I got different wardrobe needs or whatever. I don't know. That woman wanted to leave them draws over there, to which I'm like, what were you doing in the first place? What would have been the best, though, is if the wife and the piano player both went and ran up on dude. But hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this here three times a week. Also, check out Game Theory, HBO, Sunday is 11.30. Here on The Right Time, though, my man Gabe Bassane handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater, and we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.